Support for this podcast comes from Workday and U.S. Bank. Hello, this is Rob Borad, CFO of Yingling's Ice Cream, and you are listening to the CFO Thought Leader Podcast. This is episode 238. As a finance leader, are you driving driving change in your organization? How are you driving change within your organization? Hello, everyone. As you know, and most of our guests would likely quickly agree, the language of finance is a global language today. And from one industry to the next, that language can be applied. However, with this episode, we thought we'd spotlight some of the industry-specific challenges that finance professionals are helping address uh, inside their companies today. And we want to share with you some of the CFOs who we felt offered some wonderful insights into their industry and the special role finance plays. So you'll be hearing from finance leaders from the healthcare industry, food industry, and precious metals. How's that for variety? We're going to begin with Peter Mitchell, who is CFO of Core Mining, who in part shared with us some of the strategies uh, Core Mining is using to uh, protect its shareholders um, from the cycles that metal pricing uh, goes through and uh, the potential impact that those cycles can have on mining uh, company results. You'll hear from Peter right after these words from our sponsor. Many accounting and finance professionals are facing a sizable obstacle these days. In this age of data enlightenment, their financial close processes leave no time for data analysis. The very activity that opens the door to new opportunities and career advancement. Blackline has the answer. By automating, centralizing, and streamlining financial close operations, Blackline customer organizations are now ready for the data-centric world, allowing their finance and accounting professionals to open the door to new opportunities. To learn more, visit blackline.com forward slash CFO. There's something about mining uh, from a financial perspective that people uh, misunderstood, even finance leaders? I think it's, it's the recognition that mining is amongst the most capital-intensive businesses in existence. So it, it, all the normal sort of at least expected finance roles are there in terms of accounting and tax, uh, financial planning, as we've talked about, treasury. But I think perhaps a, a big differentiator is the, the ongoing need for capital, both to support our existing operations, but to the degree that we build new mines, the need to source capital for that, and just the appetite this business has for new capital and and the importance of being able to uh, access those capital markets opportunistically is a differentiator from other businesses, I would say. So what are some of the key metrics that are important when it comes to understanding your business? Well, mining is a a very technical business, as as you might imagine, and I don't want to get too technical, but the the sort of three broad categories, the the metrics we focus on, liquidity and leverage uh, type uh, key indicators or key metrics are 
important to our business. We do have some debt on our balance sheet, but as well as cash and manage that carefully. Profitability, cash flow, and operating costs, we're in a commodity business, so we do not dictate what our ultimate selling prices are of silver and gold. That's established in, in markets independent of us. So we really have to be very effective operating cost managers. So uh, key metrics around operating costs are, are extremely important to us and something that we manage on a, on a constant basis. And then the, the third sort of general area in terms of key metrics is how we value our ore in the ground, our reserves and resources, and then the metrics around that and how we value those because that's really our, our long-term cash flow annuity and a, and a key valuation metric for core mining. In your, in your blog post, of course, you talked about uh, managing downside risk. But I thought it was interesting that mining companies have been hesitant to, uh, to tap the derivatives market uh, in the past, or, or by and large, I suppose. What, why is that? What's, what's holding them back? There, hedging has absolutely evolved over the decades, and you mentioned the derivatives market, and it's specifically that. Historically, hedging was viewed as selling silver or gold or other uh, commodities forward, in other words, locking in a price, and therefore, if there was upside uh, movement in silver or gold prices, in our example, then the company would have already sold at a lower price and left money on the table and cheated their equity holders out of that upside. The derivative markets have evolved significantly since then where you can simply buy puts to cover downside. In other words, we will not receive less than a reserve price on, on the downside having bought puts. And the dollar amount is known with certainty as well. So why that uh, preconception continues in, in, in the mining world with, with producers and, and equity investors and things, you know, it's a bit perplexing to me. I, I think there is a, a gradual improvement in that level of understanding, but it, it, it seems to take time. You also touch on the, the strategy of issuing high-yield bonds, and you say they provide a, an attractive alternative to just taking on traditional bank debt. Uh, how so? Probably one of the central themes there is that high-yield bonds, you know, there, there's different kinds of covenants, and, and you know, there's incurrence covenants, which preclude taking on additional debt. They exist in high-yield uh, agreements or indentures, as they called. But performance covenants, things like maintaining a le minimum level of EBITDA or uh, uh, minimum leverage ratio or maximum leverage ratio, um, those types of covenants where you trip over those covenants and you have a default on your hands, those do not exist in high-yield indentures, or at least not in ours or commonly. So for a mining business where uh, performance does go up and down following the commodity price. Uh, high yield represents a great form of finance that uh, is, is not going to have a company having to go through uh, a, a covenant recalibration and negotiation uh, in all likelihood because of the lack of those performance covenants. Your finance team today, would we be surprised uh, by the types of skills that are represented on it? Would it look different, uh, very different from, 
you know, a, a finance organization within, you know, a packaged goods company or what have you? What, what, what's different about it? I think it's the, the industry-specific skill sets that are probably the differentiator. Mining is, is uh, extractive in, industries are, are pretty specific and you know, a little esoteric in terms, in terms of some of the, the accounting methodologies that we have to follow. So it, it really is the specificity related to mining. The organization itself is um, certainly not dissimilar to what you would find in other businesses. I think one of the key differentiators is our financial planning and analysis group and the importance of that where we're having to plan years out what, is, what are our ore reserves, how are we going to mine them, how do we forecast our operations in the next year, the next three years, the next five years. And we really need to have that capacity to understand what's going on with our costs, how we're going to manage from a cash flow perspective. So it's really that predictive ability is critically important, and that's an area that we've allocated a lot of resources and continue to really focus. Okay, that was Peter Mitchell explaining the dynamics inside the mining industry. In his own words, it's one of the most capital-intensive businesses in existence. Next, Jack Fortnum, CFO of Ingredient, a manufacturer of food ingredients, explores the world of innovation behind the food industry's ingredients label. Here's Jack. You know, ingredients are a fascinating business in many respects. You know, we're in, as you mentioned, we're in the food and beverage sector, and perhaps the most, the, the most great, the greatest challenge from a competitive perspective, is picking the right uh, innovation projects. You know, as you think about it, you know, the food industry continues to change on a regular basis, and so we track each one of the trends in the food industry. So our, our competitors aren't your traditional competitors necessarily. It's keeping up with the consumer trends and really having superior anticipation of what those trends will be and how we can work them. And so, you know, I'll use an example, you know, whether it's health and wellness, you know, people think that that's kind of a paramount uh, in their lives today. But, you know, we, we track trends such as gluten-free or how people are reading the labels on their, their, their packaging and develop products that really meet each one of those needs. And we've been working on these for many, many years. And, you know, we make sweeteners and starches primarily. And most of those sweeteners, you know, some of the sweeteners go into the soft drink industry. And that's kind of a, what I would say is a, a flat type of industry, but it represents about 14% of our total revenues. And, and so, so, therefore, you know, we also look at sweetness as an opportunity. How can we develop new innovative sweetness products, which are both healthy as well as uh, good in terms of tasting as well as uh, nutritious. I'm curious, your your clients clearly would be some of the largest uh, food manufacturers today? or Yeah, you know, I think one of the things that really differentiates uh, ingredient from a competitive perspective is the global nature of our business. We have a reach in terms of our operations, which services all our multinational customers, you know, whether it be uh, uh, Coca-Cola, Unilever, a number of different multinationals. And, you know, we, we can service all customers in all regions. We, we actually make over a thousand ingredients, which we sell to our customers in over a hundred countries and in 60 different se segments as we consider them. 
And then, you know, we also have manufacturing in offices in over 40 countries around the world. And one of the things is, is we actually have our manufacturing operations right in these countries. So, so we can tailor our products to both the local trends as well as the global trends. So we are wow. very customer-centric from that perspective. It's one of the things we've tried to do is really build a network of innovation facilities. And this is, these are ingredient labs. We have 24 of them around the world. And these are, are all connected together where they share their research and we adapt them to the local marketplaces. You know, one of the examples that we use is, is you know, when Mexico is changing some of their obesity laws, we actually, we actually uh, took some of our U.S. team down and looked and said, how could we reformulate some of our customers' products with them and develop new ingredients and opportunities in that space? And so we continue to work for that. The other element that I think really gives us a competitive advantage, actually, is, is that we're all on one system. You know, as a finance person, systems become very critical to the day-to-day -day communication process. This far-flung operation with labs around the world, and what are the metrics that you're keeping a close eye on to make sure you understand what's what's happening with the business? Well, it's interesting, and I'm going to use that in two different um, measures, and I'm, I'll give you one in some of our longer-term growth platforms. But one of the things when you say far-flung, one of the things is, is the technology that we have actually allows us to look at whether it be our plant performance metrics at a detailed level to our sharing of R&D resources. And so effectively what that allows us to do is, is take best practices and move them around the world. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why when you hear some of our long-term metrics, you know, if you think about uh, our revenue base, we're looking at from 2015 to 2019, you know, I'm not giving this as guidance or anything like that, but, you know, we're looking at growing our uh, revenues up to the $8 billion mark. We have sort of what we call our core ingredients, which is the day-to-day -day, uh, 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 ingredients, which flow into normal products. And then we have our very specialty ingredients, which have a lot of value-added features associated with them. And that specialty ingredient business is becoming a much larger percentage of our portfolio, and we're growing that up to $2 billion during that time frame. In addition to that, because of the product mix changing and things, we're looking at improving our, our, uh, our margins by about uh, 2%, as well as continuing to grow that low double-digit earnings per share growth. And all this time, and I think it's the most important piece, is maintaining a return on capital employed above 10% because that means that we're not just investing heavily into this, but we're also getting the returns out of it. And some people sometimes say that these are fairly aggressive growth, particularly in a food industry. And I would like to just highlight, you know, when I look at some of our historical growth patterns, our earnings per share have grown at 17% over the last 10 years, our operating income or EBIT has grown at 10% over the last 10 years, and our net sales at 12%. So, you know, I think it's a very doable type of target. Well, it's interesting. I, I find that, you know, we have a very strong technical team. And one of the things that I really like to develop in our finance people is their business acumen. You know, they really need to be able to relate to the business so that they can be very competent in finance, but also in the business itself. Thought Leader listeners, don't go anywhere. We have more of our interview after these words from our sponsor. You want smart, 
clear, and honest guidance to help you meet the financial goals of your middle market business. With U.S. Bank, you have a partner who will help you find the right solutions to help your organization reduce payment costs, enhance control, improve cash flow, and expand your spend visibility. U.S. Bank's dedication to making ethical decisions and doing the right thing is at the heart of what they do, and their efforts haven't gone unnoticed. They've been named a 2017 World's Most Ethical Company for the third consecutive year by the Ethisphere Institute. To learn more, visit uspayment.com slash middlemarket. Finally, few businesses have experienced greater disruption in recent years than those inside the healthcare industry, where large providers are now hurrying to respond to the changing insurance requirements of their customers as dictated by the Affordable Care Act. And few companies are as determined to decipher the newly emerging patterns as Siemens Healthcare. Earlier this year, we spoke to Nitin Gupta, CFO of Molecular Imaging Systems for Siemens Healthcare. Now, Nitin shared with us a powerful new mandate for innovation management and the critical role that finance is playing in putting this new framework into place at Siemens. So let's find out a little bit about the, the market for these types of products or services. And having seen your uh, presentation, I'm aware that um, traditionally, anyway, your, your uh, customers often involve radiologists. A lot of the uh, high-powered scanning machines that we find in hospitals today. Absolutely. So we are into um, uh, imaging business. So we, we, we manufacture medical devices, which helps. Uh, radiologists or, or uh, specialized doctors to look inside the body, take images of different types of diseases, whether it could be cancer or other um, an, uh, Alzheimer or prostate cancers, and, and, and look inside the body and basically get, uh, get a clear diagnosis of the situation and then carry on prognosis, basically. Yeah. So these are the machines that we make. These are high-end high uh, techno technological machines. And, um, and and are primarily used with, uh, by the radiologists. Yeah. We would love to have you explain a little more about how that customer is changing. And I mentioned up front that um, your customers traditionally have been radiologists, but in fact, under Obamacare, that landscape is, is going to shift uh, in the coming years. And maybe you can uh, share with us uh, when it comes to making investment decisions, can you share with us some of what uh, the shifting landscape, the dynamics it creates? Absolutely. I mean, this is one of the topics that I have uh, really at the core of almost uh, every discussion, every meeting that we have, either internally or externally with the customers. Yeah. Um, I don't know how it will shape up in the future because um, – uh, it is still uh, evolving, uh, but what I can share is definitely what we know. And, and, and what we know today is that uh, for sure the, the reimbursement to our hospitals, which are our customers, from, um, will change. It's, it's simple as that. Um, and, and to explain it simply, um, uh, today you go to, uh, you, you, you break your leg, let's say, you go to the doctor, you get an x-ray, you get the treatment, and the doctor bills it to the insurance company, 
No questions asked if they're in the reimbursement code list that um, the insurance company pays. Um, that's as simple as that. And, and th this is what happens today. Tomorrow, uh, and when I say tomorrow means most likely 2018 um, or in the next couple of years, what will happen is um, the insurance company will only pay if the broken leg is completely repaired within a certain time and they and the patient does not have to come back to the hospital uh, for a second treatment because it was not done before so imagine the pressure on the hospital of improving the quality of care and managing costs completely down so with this dynamic and with this dramatic shift in their revenue streams uh, what they are uh, what they suddenly are doing is they are tightening their bells and they are trying to do group procurements. So what does that mean? That means the hospitals are, are consolidating, as we see in the US. Um, there are IDNs, integrated delivery networks being established. And when they procure, they procure um, equipment for 10, 20 hospitals together. So for us, the volume increases, but also the discussions are more tougher. And the other big change is, historically and traditionally, we, being a niche boutique market with a highly technological orientation in terms of our portfolio, we used to discuss our portfolio, our, our um, offers with radiologists. Now, suddenly, the radiologists are fading away from the procurement decisions in the front line. They're, of course, they're in the back, uh, back end. But the IDNs are being, uh, they negotiate through the procurement department. How did finance in some ways educate your decision-making community? And by that I mean certainly your engineering team, which has always had a, a powerful influence over uh, technology development and where to go next. Uh, how, how do you kind of educate the ecosystem? Um, absolutely an important uh, question. We, uh, we in Siemens um, Healthcare, we, a couple of years ago, we started a project uh, um, basically focused on innovation management and what is the CFO's role in capital allocation. And as you can very well imagine, um, if you have um, a head of R&D who has been um, experienced for 30, 40 years in in, in, in kind of hardcore technological uh, area, and he's had a lot of successes. And to have a discussion with him, it, it, it needs to be based on certain facts and it needs to be based on certain structure. So what we developed is uh, we developed a framework to assess risk and returns out of the R&D investments. Basically, we implemented KPIs to review R&D investments from an investor's perspective, but in a very transparent manner. And some of the cultural uh, risks that may have been, again, uh, there was a tradition perhaps of your engineering teams making a lot of these decisions without without a framework or uh, traditional frameworks. Um, I, I wouldn't say um, without a framework. I think uh, we have, we've always had the framework for our for our investment decisions. It's just that because of the, um, uh, the, the world changing so fast outside our traditional economy, 
um, I think the the traditional decision making models are are needs an upgrade to to stay up with the speed of change that is happening outside. The images that our our uh, machines produce are normally a 2D image. Now you can improve the pixels and you can see some things better. You can improve certain um, quality, certain information in the images, and so on. Um, but there's a uh, but there is a startup in in Israel which takes the images that we generate, runs a runs a local software which is readily available, and converts it into a 3D image. The Halo technology. And what the doctor can do actually is try and simulate a surgery using that software um, before actually taking the knife and, and operating upon a patient. So producing an image remains important, but the use of that image becomes even more attractive for the customer. So our, our traditional innovation decision models would traditionally be focused on improving the quality of the image. But this new model would add, on top of the traditional model, also the, the, the risk factor of are we using the image the right way. It basically forces uh, some of the aspects which are related to the changes happening externally into our decision-making. Okay, we hope you found this episode interesting. We enjoy taking deep dives ever so often with CFOs who today wield not only technical knowledge, but deep industry knowledge. For CFO Thought Leader, this is Jack Sweeney. Hi, it's Jack Sweeney. At CFO Thought Leader, we wanted to give you, the listener, some added clout when it comes to selecting next season's CFO guests. We call it Listener's Choice. And in the months ahead, our Listener's Choice guests will enjoy some added box office clout as we advance the CFOs you most want to hear from into next season's CFO lineup. To learn more about CFO Thought Leader's Listener's Choice, visit us at cfothoughtleader.com or go ahead and email me at jack at cfothoughtleader.com. Hey, one last thing. It's no secret when we originated CFO Thought Leader, it was with iPhone users in mind. Android users, we have neglected you. And so to make amends, we just released a CFO Thought Leader mobile app just for you. It's now ready for download on Google Play and Amazon Android Markets. No matter what world you're part of, thank you for listening. Thank you.